You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, we are talking about the statement of cash flows. You'll hear us refer to this as the middle child, the redheaded stepchild, the most underappreciated of all the financial statements. So we hope you'll come out on the other side of this episode with a little more love in your heart for the statement of cash flows. I mean, come on, for all you, all of my accounting friends who were drawn in by the feeling that accounting was a lot like a puzzle, this should definitely be your favorite statement. You have to find the right place for everything to fit and watch it all come together. It's actually pretty fun. Well, relatively speaking, it's still not as fun as going on a vacation, but in terms of accounting, this is fun. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's National Quality Leader, and we get to welcome Julie Avalanet back again. Uh, she is a senior manager on Adam's team of National Quality, so she is helping us make sure all of our stuff is in tip-top technical shape, warming up my mouth for the rest of this episode. <laughs> and today we are talking about everybody's favorite financial statement, the cash flow statement. And I feel like this is where accounting feels most like a puzzle and some people thrive with it and other people, maybe not so much. So let's jump in and see if we can help demystify the cash flow statement for our listeners. So Adam, as usual, can you start us off with just a general overview of the cash flow statement and what the purpose of it is? Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's fair to say that the, the cash flow statement probably gets the least amount of love out of all, all the financial statements. It's like the middle child of the, the family here. Um, you know, and it it's rightfully so in many cases, because if, you know, generally people probably only work on the cash flow at a quarter end, or even for private companies, they just have to prepare a cash flow for their year-end reporting. So it's not something that often is an exercise people have to, you know, repeat over and over again. But the cash flow statement itself, you know, it's very, very useful. Tons of analysts use it. It provides a lot of great information. And, and ultimately, what the purpose is, is to paint a picture of how cash moved in and out of a business during the period of time that the cash flow is covering. So you know, it can help assess, you know, the entity's ability to generate positive future net cash flows. It talks about, you know, being able to meet its upcoming obligations. Um, it can indicate whether or not an entity may need more financing or not. But it also discloses things that aren't necessarily cash, but actually impact certain investing and financing activities. So a lot of good things that the cash flow does. You mentioned earlier that people typically look at the cash flow statement once a quarter or for year in reporting. So when an entity is going through their reporting, at what point does it make sense for them to start looking at their cash flow statement? Yeah, so the cash flow statement itself, it's you know, it's the only statement that's obviously on a cash basis. Um, so it really is a bridge between the other um, financial statements, so the income statement and the balance sheet. So it really doesn't make sense to start working on your cash flow statement until you've got your balance sheet, your income statement, and any other supporting schedules that you might need for the, the various investing or financing activities um, complete. You know, again, the whole purpose of that cash flow statement is really to reconcile your beginning and ending cash, cash equivalents, and restricted cash balances. Um, and along with that, the standard layout of the cash flow worksheet is really driven by your balance sheet account. Um, changes in your balance sheet accounts. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to really start jumping into your cash flow if you have a lot of moving pieces still going on with 
post-close entries or reconciliations or whatever your, your accounting or finance team may be working through because it ultimately will just kind of create an inefficient process. So most people wait until all that stuff's in a good stopping point and then you can really hammer out the cash flow. And we talked about reconciling beginning and ending cash balances. Um, there's also cash equivalents and restricted cash. So why is it all three of those? Why aren't we just reconciling simply cash? Yeah, so again, you know, the, the purpose of that cash flow is to represent cash moving in and out of the business. And, you know, if you look at what actually is a cash equivalent, um, you know, cash equivalents, they're short term, they're highly liquid investments that have such a short maturity, you know, generally it's 90 days or less, and that there is such an insignificant risk of changes in value that they're often viewed as, as cash themselves. And then restricted cash is really just cash that's contractually or legally restricted. But like I said, it's still cash to the business. Um, oftentimes, restricted cash is going to be presented separately from cash and cash equivalents. So, you know, the FASB kind of clarified back in 2016 that, you know, the cash flow itself shouldn't just be the cash balance on the balance sheet. You also need to include a reconciliation of cash equivalents and restricted cash. So what you're saying is some cash items may not actually be called cash and cash equivalents on the balance sheet. Yeah, in some cases, yes. Yeah. So depending on the entity, you could have items that actually qualify as like a cash equivalent um, or restricted cash. And that could be based on the company's accounting policy for how they define some of those items that are actually presented in other balance sheet line items. So, you know, a common one is sometimes you'll have um, cash equivalent balances that might be reflected in short-term investments on the balance sheet or um, something that's maybe reflected in other assets, you know, things that could be, you know, in short-term investments, they may be things like treasury notes. So, you know, a short-term treasury note that's got a three-month maturity or less, commercial papers, um, cer certain investments in money market funds that qualify um, could be a cash equivalent. And then things that you might see presented in other assets could be, you know, cash that could be held in escrow or holdbacks related to a business combination. So you just want to make sure that when you're trying to reconcile all the activity of the cash flow is that you're thinking about potentially other areas where maybe cash exists that isn't in that cash and cash equivalents line item. So can an entity change what it considers a cash equivalent? Uh, at a high level, they can. Like I said um, earlier, you know, the determination of what is a cash equivalent is kind of an accounting policy. There is obviously guidelines and gap for that, but what ultimately a company calls a cash equivalent is going to be part of their accounting policy. So if they change what they're considering a cash equivalent, um, it is going to be viewed as a change in accounting principle. So it, you know, anytime you have a change in accounting principle, you go back to the guidance in ASC 250. And for changes in accounting principle, you do have to demonstrate that it's preferable for that change. And then once you've done that, you know, from a financial statement um, reporting perspective, you would have to retrospectively apply that change in accounting principle. And shameless plug for a recent episode we did with Nicole about assets hold for sale. How do cash amounts included in assets hold for sale get treated on the cash flow statement? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, in some cases, a disposal group that maybe you classified as held for sale could include cash, cash equivalents, and restricted cash. Um, the way, you know, an entity might account for that um, when presenting their cash flow is usually done in by one of two ways. So one way is just including a reconciling item on the statement of cash flows itself, you know, after the financing activity subtotal, you know, this 
this item here would essentially just reflect the, the change in cash balances that are included in the company's held for sale assets line item. Um, alternatively, what you could do is just include a reconciliation of that amount in the footnotes itself. So in this case, the cash flow statement itself would just include changes in cash related assets held for sale in both the beginning and ending cash balances on the statement. There wouldn't actually be anything called out on the statement itself. So now that we've kind of identified what we're calling cash, um, once we've inventoried and identified our beginning and ending balances, how do we organize the rest of the cash activity? Julie, I'll throw this one over to you. So there's three classifications. Uh, you have operating, investing, and financing activities. So operating activities are those that generate revenue for the company. They're producing cash flows from your current assets and your current liabilities. And generally, this is sort of like the catch-all for any cash receipts and cash payments that, that don't fit the definition of financing or investing. Um, investing activities are typically your acquisitions, disposals of any long-term assets, businesses, and other investments that aren't cash, cash equivalents, or restricted cash. And then financing activities are those changes in your equity or capital and any borrowings. Uh, and then the guidance also requires that you disclose your non-cash investing and financing activities, either on the face of the cash flow statements or in the footnotes. And if I remember correctly from my accounting days, there are two methods for presenting operating cash flows, correct? Yep, you're right. Uh, there are two methods for presenting your operating cash flows. You have your indirect method and your direct method. Keep in mind that no matter which method you're using, you're going to arrive at the same cash flows from the uh, operating activities in total. And the presentation of your investing and your financing activities are the same under both methods. But since nearly every company uses the indirect method for operating cash flows, we'll just hone in on that one in our discussion. So with the indirect method, you begin with your net income or loss as reported on your income statement, and then you apply adjustments with the ultimate goal of reconciling that net income or loss to net cash from operating activities. So those adjustments would include um, deducting your non-cash gains, adding back any non-cash losses or expenses, as well as adjustments for the fancy way to say it is the effects of all the deferrals of your past operating cash receipts and payments. But most commonly, you'll see this on your cash flow statement as the changes in operating assets and liabilities. So the general rule of thumb is to present your operating assets and your operating liabilities separately. And of course, breaking out any material components that you have in there. Uh, and also under the indirect method, any amounts that you pay for interest or income taxes during the period would then be disclosed. And, you know, those three buckets, we know what they are, but what if a company doesn't know how to pass classify their cash flows? What should they do? Uh, well, first know that you're not alone. Uh, the guidance in ASC 230 is pretty principles based. And it doesn't provide much detail on how to classify cash flows. And so this has led to a lot of diversity in practice and causes challenges for many financial statement preparers and oftentimes comments from the SEC. Um, so much so that the FASB released an ASU back in 2016. Uh, that was ASU 2016-15. 
And they released that to help clarify how to classify certain cash activity, especially in those areas where there was a lot of diversity in practice. So in general, the FASB says that if specific guidance doesn't exist, then the nature of the underlying cash flow should determine how to classify the cash receipt or the cash payment. And if there's more than one class of cash flows, then you should separate them by each identifiable source or use of the cash. However, if you can't separate it by source or use, then uh, you would make your final determination of the classification based on the activity that is likely to be the predominant source or use of the cash flows for the item. So it's often best practice for an entity to disclose their accounting policy and the related judgments and how they classify their cash flows in circumstances like those. And is there a set order or an order that's helpful to evaluate cash flow classification? Yeah, so most companies will start by looking to see if their cash flows qualify as an investing activity. And if not, they'll move on to financing and then they'll end up with dumping it into operating activities. So this ultimately ends up with the principle-based cash flow guidance and having a bias towards presenting cash flows as operating. What about presentation of cash flow activity? Can they be netted or should they be presented as gross? So generally when you have information about the gross amounts of your cash inflows and cash outflows, the information is a lot more relevant than the information about the net amounts. But sometimes you have quick turnover, the amounts are large, the maturities are short enough to where the net amount would provide you sufficient information. So uh, generally, if the original maturity of the asset or the liability is 90 days or less, then it might be reasonable to just present your net cash receipts and payments for things like investments, other than the cash equivalents, and then your loans receivable in debt. And Adam, in your many, many, many Many years of experience. Oh. <laughs> what are some common issues you've seen with the uh, financial statement preparers dealing with uh, cash flow statements? Yeah, so there, there's several. I don't think we'll hone in on every single one, but maybe pick some of the, the more common ones that I'm used to running across. Um, so a big one is really related to purchases of property, plant, and equipment. So capital expenditures um, and how to classify you know, that activity itself. Um, so for classification purposes, when it comes to, you know, fixed assets, PP&E, really the timing of the payment related to the capital expenditure is going to drive the classification under the cash flow guidance. So what I mean by that is like where the payment is made either shortly before or at the time of the purchase or soon after, you know, the cash flow activity is going to be an investing activity. Um, on the other hand, if there are payments for capital expenditures that are made long after the purchase, you, you know, you really have to think about that. The nature of that payment is probably more, you know, akin to a financing activity. And in circumstances, if you're making multiple payments on a, on a fixed asset purchase, you could have some payments that are investing activities and some that are financing activities just based on that, that principle there. So I heard some words in there that make me feel like there's some judgment coming. So what do you mean when you say a capital expenditure payment that was soon after versus long after? Yeah, so a general guideline that we, you know, we kind of use here and what I see used in practice is that payments that are made within 90 days of purchase would be considered an investing activity. Um, and then any payments that are made after 90 days related to the purchase are viewed as a financing activity. And 90 days is really kind of 
you know, it's not a hard set number, but it, it really kind of aligns with other guidance related to cash and cash flow. So if you think about a cash equivalent, there's a 90 day metric there. So this is what people generally kind of default to when they're trying to view whether a, a cash flow payment or fixed assets is going to be investing or financing. And you also mentioned that determining the actual cash activity for purchases of PPE can be complex. So how should our listeners think about determining this amount? So when you're trying to figure out your capital expenditure purchases, um, you generally are going to start with the additions to PPE at costs. And normally that'll just come from your, your standard fixed asset roll forward. Um, from there, you know, we see preparers make an adjustment for the additions to PPE for those that are still sitting in accounts payable because they aren't a cash flow item um, or other accrued balances if they're not in AP at the end of the period. Um, because like I said, these actually haven't been paid with cash, so they really shouldn't be reflected within any of the activities on the cash flow yet. Um, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that when you're making that adjustment um, to PP&Es, really you need to be focusing on the change in the accrued pp and &E from the beginning of the period to the end of the period, uh, because you're likely to have balances both from the prior year that probably ran through the cash flow because they were paid, but then you also have amounts that were accrued at the end of the year. So just make sure that when you're looking at um, you know, which piece to include within the activity of the capital expenditures um, on the cash flow itself is that you're looking at that change in that accrued amount. Um, you also need to think about that if there is anything that's left over as being um, accrued at the end of the period, that there is a non-cash investing activity disclosure for fixed asset purchases that are sitting either in AP or accrued liabilities or wherever you've stuck them. Um, one last thing to think about is that if you, um, you might have to make some adjustments that could also impact the true cash out for capital expenditures. And this could relate to, you know, things like transfers between, you know, CIP accounts to your fixed asset accounts. Um, and any of these non-cash adjustments, again, are also going to be included as a supplemental disclosure. Are there any other problems children related to cash flows? Yeah, one other thing that comes to mind that I see from time to time is when, um, you know, entities will have a financial institution or some other like third party that more or less kind of acts like an agent for the company. Um, and, you know, what they do is they essentially transfer cash on behalf of the reporting entity. Um, so an example here that that might help illustrate this is like, let's say a company, you know, purchases, you know, a bunch of assets and they finance them through a bank. So when the transaction closes, the bank itself is, you know, decides that on, you know, direction from the company that they're just going to wire cash directly to the seller instead of, wiring cash to the company and the company then wiring cash to the seller. And so the cash from the financing doesn't actually ever get deposited into the company's bank accounts um, since it's paid directly from the bank to the seller. So there's often a question here about whether this transaction should be reported in the, you know, the reporting entities cash flow activities or if it should be a non-cash disclosure. And you'll often hear people refer to the concept of constructive receipts and disbursements and evaluating that. Um, and so when you have instances like this where things are, you know, cash flows are almost kind of like bypassing the company, um, but they're done so for like purposes of convenience. So obviously in this case, it's just to take a step out of something that would ultimately happen anyways. 
Um, most reporting entities are going to apply this constructive receipts and disbursements principle, which basically you know, states that those cash flows should be reported in the reporting entity statement of cash flows as if they had received cash and then paid cash out. And Julie, do you have any common issues that you've seen to add? Yeah, so there's one that relates to distributions from equity method investments. So the guidance in ASC 230 talks about how cash flows that represent a return on investment are typically operating cash flows, whereas those that represent a return of investment are investing. Um, the problem here is that neither of those terms are actually defined in ASC 230. So companies should consider um, drafting up an accounting policy for how they determine whether distributions from an equity method investment represent a return on or of their investment. So in practice, we usually see two different approaches that are used, and that is the cumulative earnings approach and then the nature of the distribution approach. All right, those are all good and very complicated issues to run into. I'm glad you guys went through those. And I know leases are top of mind right now with private companies adopting ASC 842 in 2022. So does that transition to 842 impact the cash flow statement at all? Yes, it does. Um, specifically, there will be uh, additional requirements for the operating activity section. So if you're using the indirect method, you're a lessee, you have an operating lease, you'll have to adjust your net income loss with non-cash lease expense. This is essentially your reduction in the ROU asset. Um, if you have any payments that you made for operating leases that represent the cost of bringing another asset to the condition and location necessary for its intended use, that would be classified as investing activities. And then further down at the bottom of the cash flow statement where you disclose your non-cash investing and financing activities, you'll now have to disclose any new ROU assets or new lease liabilities at lease commencement as well as any non-cash changes to the ROU assets and lease liabilities, typically um, that would be due to any lease modifications or other remeasurement events. And so we've kind of touched on this a little bit already with the non-cash items and supplemental disclosures, but uh, just for clarity's sake, how do you know when you need to disclose a non-cash investing or financing activity? Yeah, so the high-level answer is if you have any non-cash increases or decreases to your balance sheet accounts related to your long-term assets, acquisitions, debt, or equity, you'll probably need to disclose it. Um, some examples would be, did you declare any dividends but not pay it out yet? Do you have any issuance of warrants, cashless exercise of warrants, or stock options? Uh, do you have any non-cash impacts to equity upon conversion of convertible debt? Uh, have you exchanged any non-cash assets or liabilities for another non-cash asset or liability? Uh, did you acquire the business through issuance of any non-cash consideration? So there's quite a lot out there, but a general rule of thumb is if you have an increase or decrease that was non-cash, uh, then you'll probably have to disclose that. Right. And what about when it comes to being multinational organizations? How does foreign currency impact preparing the cash flow statement? Yeah, so that can get a little tricky. Uh, when a reporting entity has operations with 
functional currencies that are foreign currencies, uh, you want to prepare a separate statement of cash flows for each distinct operation or each distinct entity, a subsidiary, however you want to call it, you would prepare a separate statement of cash flows using its functional currency. So after that's done, you would then translate each standalone cash flow statement into the reporting currency of the reporting entity. And you'll probably use a combination of different exchange rates depending on the cash flow activity. And after they've all been translated, you would then consolidate them and then calculate your effective exchange rate on your cash and cash equivalents. And this is most commonly called uh, translation gain or loss. And this is not to be confused with the effects of transaction gains and losses. Uh, translation gains and losses are recognized in your OCI and they're not included in the cash flows from operating, investing, or financing activities. And since they don't actually result in cash flows themselves, you would create a separate line item for this effective exchange rates. And typically this goes right after your net cash from financing activities. And that amount would then go into the sum of your net change of all your cash flows. So is the effective exchange rate simply a plug to reconcile the beginning and ending balances of cash? No, unfortunately, it's not a plug that would make life so much simpler, <laughs> but that's a common misconception. There is a formula that can be used to calculate the correct amount. Um, the guidance does provide a detailed example of how you would determine that. Um, so I would definitely refer to the guidance there. So as we wrap up our discussion here, Adam, are there any differences for how the cash flow statement is presented for interim periods? Yeah, so there can be. So it, it's kind of similar to other interim financial information if you prepare interim statements. Um, that being said, like the statement of cash flows could also be presented on a condensed basis. So for example, you know, an entity's interim statement of cash flows, you know, it may start with just a single amount of net cash flows from operating activities. And then the cash flow itself will just show changes um, in investing and financing activities individually if they exceed 10% of the average net cash flows from operating activities for the most recent three years. So all that being said is like a lot of times, you know, an entity could have a very truncated cash flow that's really only highlighting significant, you know, investing and financing activities that occurred and otherwise everything else is at a very summary level. I do say in practice, a lot of times people still will present the full cash flow because it may just be more meaningful to their users um, or to investors. And so they still, you know, continue to provide a full cash flow statement. Um, one thing to keep in mind is if you do a condensed cash flow because you do present condensed financial statements in your interim reporting, um, if you have any like combined captions that you combined in one period that weren't combined in a previous period, um, you, you essentially should retroactively reclassify any amounts in those prior periods so that they conform to whatever captions are going to be presented in your current interim period. Makes sense. And what periods does a reporting entity use when preparing its cash flow statement? Yeah, so for an interim reporting period, the statement of cash flows is going to be presented for the period between the end of the preceding fiscal year and then the most recent fiscal quarter, as well as for the corresponding period of the preceding fiscal year. So in other words, a year-to-date statement of cash flows. Um, some entities can also choose to present a cumulative 12-month ended 
um, cash flow statement during the most recent fiscal quarter and the corresponding preceding period, um, cumulative 12 month cash flow, if that again is also more meaningful to the users of their financial statements. Okay, and, and do the interim period require disclosures of those supplemental or non-cash activities we talked about earlier? Yeah, so the uh, the disclosure of the change in your non-cash items or, you know, we talked about, you know, when you do the indirect method, you have to, you know, in your annual cash flow, you have to present the amount of cash interest and income taxes paid. Um, that's not necessarily required in the interim financial statements. Um, you know, many entities will still provide that information, you know, especially if it's significant, they'll include the non-cash activities. Um, you know, usually the cash interest paid and income taxes paid may not be as significant, so maybe they omit that one. Um, but again, you know, just thinking about what's useful to the users of the financial statements. Uh, but when you're trying to maybe gauge whether or not a non-cash activity, again, you know, is significant in terms of presenting it separately, um, it really comes down to, again, you looking at whether that non-cash activity exceeds 10% of that three-year average of the net cash flows from operating activities. That's kind of the, the barometer you use to measure that significance. All right. Well, this was so helpful, and I think this is probably a good place to land the plane. Hopefully, we've shown a little extra love to our redheaded stepchild of the financial statements, and people feel a little warmer in their hearts towards the statement of cash flows. Thank you, Adam and Julie, for joining me for another conversation. And thank you, listeners, for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series. And it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.